Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. All right, folks, I am here with, here we go, Ekaterina Solovyova. That was great. Did I get it? You got it, Richard. All right, but from now on, we're calling her Kate. We're going to refer to her as Kate because it's just easier for my lips. And I asked Kate to come on with me to discuss a blog that she had posted in respect to this experience this nine-year-old girl had gone through where she competed in a 24-hour battle frog event. And on the social media, there was some friends that were making comments about it, and it was popped up there, and I read the blog, and and uh, somebody suggested to me, you know, i really love to see Richard interview uh, Kate to get her take on it and just kind of bring this thing out to light and get some opinion because it's obviously a very controversial thing to have a girl so young or a child so young participate in an event that is so challenging and to just kind of take it to where Kate had left it she said she was not impressed and I would have thought man she must have been wearing a helmet when she said that so Kate thank you for coming on and before we get into this, let's just kind of let you have the mic for a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how this all kind of came together. Uh, well, I'm Kate, or Ekaterina Solovyova, as Richard uh, enunciated very nicely after lots and lots of practice pre-recording. Uh, although in the sport, like in obstacle racing, I'm probably more uh, known as Solo, which uh, has been a racing nickname for precisely the reason that people can't really pronounce the full name. Uh, and um, in uh, my past life, I was uh, teaching psychology at our college university level. Uh, I have a master's degree in uh, social and personality psychology, and that's my undergraduate degree as well. Uh, and uh, after that, I switched careers, and I am currently a health coach, uh, working primarily with women, uh, working on uh, helping them moving, um, eating, and living better. Okie dokie. Talk to me about a, being a health coach. That seems like such a tough thing to be. It can be. It's uh, it's very re- rewarding, but it can be challenging as well. Does that mean that you have to be impeccable with your diet and your lifestyle? Uh, I think some health coaches would uh, expect other health coaches to be impeccable and maybe expect themselves to be impeccable. But I think part of what I try to convey to my clients is that health is not about perfection because perfection is an imaginary concept that doesn't really exist in real life. Real life is messy. 
Uh, and I think there is really no such thing as a perfect diet anyway. So if we were talking about being perfect with your diet, it would be difficult to define what that is anyway. Because, you know, we could say that oranges are healthy, so you should eat oranges. But if one is allergic to citrus fruit, for example, then obviously oranges are not healthy for you. So it really comes down to figuring out what works for any given individual, given their particular limitations, constraints, desires, goals, etc. I got it. Okay, that that paints a pretty uh, interesting picture in respect to where we're headed next, okay? Health and what would be the appropriate thing to do for an individual uh, in order to um, marry up to said opinion of health. And we're, we got this nine-year-old girl that her and her father participated in this 24-hour Battle Frog event. And before we got on to talk about this live, I shared with you that I had did an interview with the parents of a seven-year-old kid that was doing ultra marathons. And my thought, and you said, are you really going to go on record and say that? And I'm going to say it because I just don't care, right? I My first blush opinion of that was it was borderline child abuse. And I'm not going to go out there and suggest that in this case, this was any type of abuse on the part of the parent and the child. But I'm saying that we don't know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a parent. My, my son at this point now is 30 years old. And he's in special forces in, in the military. But my only experience in parenting was with that. And I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of rugged. I pushed my kid around a little bit when he was young to try to get him to to man up, so to speak, and I would, you know, try to get him involved in things that he was reluctant to get involved in. I could recall bringing him on a, a mountain bike ride through terrain that he had no business being on and kind of like tugging the handlebars to try to help him get up the rough spots, and and he was fearful as hell through the whole thing. And so I would say that I probably qualified as a, a bit of a uh, abuser at that point in time without really being conscious of it. But I'm just wondering, I guess the broad stroke, if people are wondering what my opinion on all of this is, I, I just wonder what the ramifications are down the road. That's always kind of been my concern. That was my concern when I spoke to the parents of this ultra-marathon child uh, a couple years back, is that we, what do we know about what is the thing to do or what is not the thing to do with someone that is that young? Your take seemed to be far different than mine. Can you kind of like paint a picture in respect to what led you to create and post the blog that you wrote about this scenario? Yeah, I think it's a great question. There are a couple of layers and a couple of angles, I guess, that we could take in terms of discussing the story. And uh, for me, when I saw the initial um, story of uh, Mila running this race with her father, um, and then finally seeing the story unravel and get picked up by a number of media sources where it, it has gone somewhat viral with uh, multiple friends and parents sharing it. And I think I really 
pulled myself back, not really wanting to comment because part of me was hoping that somebody else would, um, because my big concern would be, I am not a parent. I don't work with children, and I would never dream of criticizing a parent for how they raise their child, because I don't know what it's like. Um, however, what my focus and my angle of covering the story was, was simply the portrayal of the story. So how the narrative about the story was created. What did we talk about? What were the images around the story? Um, and that was really my focus. So the focus was on what were the pieces that we saw? What were the pieces that were omitted? Um, and I think for most people, their exposure to the story was really that one article that they would have seen, whether the article was on Fox News or Huffington Post or something else. Uh, so they saw this very uh, short blurb about a feel-good and a clickbaity kind of story. It's like, oh my God, that's, that's amazing. That's really cool. Uh, and when I write an article about something, I try and go a little bit deeper and do the research of things behind and underneath and kind of what led up to this particular uh, incident or this particular experience. And I think why many people enjoy reading some of my writing. So when I went back kind of looking at what led up to the experience, there were a number of things that just that I found a little bit more disconcerting. And that was things like uh, the Instagram account that Mila had that was her own uh, with some of the images and kind of the wording uh, around the uh, like the wording that was used around the images and um, also some of the some of the goals that I think her father was uh, saying that they had and uh, how certain things just kind of didn't add up to me. So that was really what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about the other side. I wanted to um, kind of show a different angle to the story. And I don't think people like very much when you take something that is very feel good and you point out the other side of it. You take it apart. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's a little bit like killing the rainbow, right? Like yeah. it's, it's not fun. Well, I, I did a little research, you know, because I didn't want to come on to this and, and not have a clue as to what I was talking about. But I'm looking at some, I mean, th this girl was covered a lot of places. I mean, I saw that there is a post from Cosmopolitan. Um, there was something on CBS. Uh, there's just a lot of coverage for the thing. And I looked at some videos of the girl speaking where they actually interviewed her and when she speaks, she speaks like a nine-year-old. And as you suggested, when things are written on her behalf, she it, it, it sounds like that. It sounds like somebody's writing and loading her lips, so to speak. And the question I would have is whether they're doing that for their own reasons and, and gain or whether it's in fact something that what her whole position is in life. And Really, at nine years old, I mean, what kind of a position do you have in life, right, in respect to – she's talking about being a, a spokesperson on the the notion of bullying in the second grade. And, geez, if I could even think back to when I was in the second grade, I was probably that bully, right? Um, but really, what what kind of bullying goes on that early in life, right? I mean, 
Am I wrong about this, or, or is it just a little early to be worrying about bullies? I don't necessarily think that it's about whether it's early or not. I imagine I would imagine bullying can occur at any age. And one of the things, again, um, I can't possibly question whether something has or has not occurred, right? Like so that I don't argue with individual experience, but what I can argue is the perception of. So the the portrayal of the suggestions of what um, happened versus not. So the, some of the things that I've discussed and those were kind of the points that I uh, raised in the blog post was, so I think what you're referring as is uh, deception. And to me, I think I, as a consumer of information, I felt a little bit manipulated by seeing the posts that were supposed to be written by a nine-year-old. And like you said, when uh, you see Mila speak, she she talks like a nine-year-old, and she actually seems like an awesome kid. Uh, but when you see the images of her on Instagram with motivational quotes and, uh, and kind of hashtags, inspirational and abs and uh, goals, um, they really... And lipstick. Yeah, they, they don't seem they don't seem authentic. So it just really seems like it. these are the posts that have been written by someone. And I acknowledge being kind of this you no know, cynical, skeptical individual who tends to question the status quo, um, but there are just a lot of similarities between seeing the quote that Christian, who is her father, uh, used on some of the other uh, media outlets and some of the things that came up in, in the posts. Um, of of Mila that was supposedly said by Mila. So to me, it was just kind of that inauthenticity that uh, I think ticked me off a little bit. I guess essentially the thing that draws me to it is not so much about the potential deception, because I think you're right about that. I think that whether it was intended or otherwise, it is a bit deceiving. It's, It's painting a picture that this girl is more advanced in her thinking than she probably is. What I guess my thing is, where's this going? I mean, would would this be suggesting to other people that, hey, you know, drag your kid out to do one of these events and spend the time to train them and get them ready for it because it's going to be something that's going to empower them down the road? Is it going to make them a better person? And let's just say that, and, and I know people come up with this whole concept of growth plates and all the, you know, the, the, the biological and physiological concerns that, that are mustered up when you think about, because we, we really don't even have any base knowledge to compare this to because it's so rare that someone that young would do something so odorous. So what, what, what happens like 10 years from now when you find out that She's got issues with her joints or some kind of malady that's associated with the the, um, the forced labor, I should call it. Uh, and I, when I say forced labor, I'm not trying to refer to him, you know, browbeating or pushing his daughter down the road. I'm sure he didn't do that. But what I'm saying is that I, I was thinking of analogies before we got on. And I, I used to have a Rottweiler. And, I, you know, I thought, okay, big, tough dog. While it was a puppy, I would take the dog uh, roller skating. And I used to do, you know, like high-speed roller skating on the road and go for like miles and miles and miles and see how fast I could go. And uh, I would take my dog with me. 
and my dog ended up with hip dysplasia. And I know the breed has tendency to earn that, that type of malady just because of the breeding was just bad, I guess, for the dogs is what they tell you. But at the end of the day, I probably wasn't doing that dog any service by dragging it down the road, but it was coming because it loved to satisfy me and it loved to be with me. And, and, and I, you know, it's kind of a weird analogy. I, I apologize. But I guess my thing is is that being a parent once upon a time, knowing that kids want to satisfy the the desires and wants of the parents, they want to make them happy, they want to be part of their lives, and athletes tend to be self-serving. We get out and we spend a buttload of time doing our thing and everything else kind of falls to the wayside. And the children have a tendency to fall into that rut where they, they're not getting the type of attention they might have got had they mom and dad were soccer parents where the, the whole livelihood is about surrounding the development of the kid. I guess where I'm going with this is that was it in the kid's heart to want to do this or was it in the parent's heart to watch his kid do this? And if that was the case, was that a good thing? Um, well, I think you're kind of getting at, um, you know, parental intentions, right? And right. whether this this was indeed the intention. And the one thing, um, well, I guess I don't know, but I I don't really doubt that Christian had good intentions here. I really don't doubt that piece. And just from the little that I learned about Christian uh, from his website, he owns a gym, he's a personal trainer, um, is that he has made a significant life change. He has lost a bunch of weight. He started exercising. He started eating better. And working with clients every single day who try to do just that, I don't want to take away from that accomplishment because that takes an incredible amount of work and courage and motivation, right? And wanting to to perhaps live that life, that active, athletic, healthy lifestyle with his daughter. I can't possibly see it as anything but good intentioned. The concern here is that the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, yeah. right? Like so this is kind of where we question things that just because a nine year old can do something doesn't necessarily mean that a nine year old should do it. Yeah. Well, listen, I was that guy, you know, just to be upfront with this, is that I was that guy. I owned a health club, health clubs, and I, all through my my child's upbringing, he was basically living in the daycare uh, at my gym and or being a part of this so-called healthy lifestyle all the time and was you know, essentially reared with, you can't eat that, you can't eat this, this is bad for you, this is good for you. And I don't know that, I don't know that at the end of the day, I mean, it was all well intended, you know, it was, wasn't like, uh, you know, we were trying to punish him. He, he just, he just fell into this lifestyle with us, whether he liked it or not. And I don't know that, I mean, I should ask him that down the road, whether he resented having kind of been forced into that cookie cutter uh, lifestyle. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's why, again, I want to talk about this because it's kind of an interesting topic. And I think that look at the sport now. Let's take, uh, let's take the sport of obstacle racing and it being kind of new too, right? And the concept of kids that young doing things that are that challenging that we have no knowledge of, we don't have we don't have any history to say, well, that wasn't a good idea, 
or that was a great idea, was no developmental knowledge in exercise physiology to draw from. You know, someone might go back and say, well, you know, back in the day, kids used to work on the farm and would work, you know, 12 hours a day and la, 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 la. I don't know. But training with intention at an early age like that is different, I think. And where I'm going with this is that what is, how is this going to unfold in the sport? Giving someone a pass beyond what was the barriers in respect to uh, who should be allowed or who shouldn't be allowed relative to age. Now, we've opened Pandora's box by allowing this child to participate in an event that long. Is that the new guard now? Can Does everybody get to come play? And if that is the case, what kind of outcome is going to come from that? I mean, there's just so many things to think about, right? Well, I, I definitely was a bit surprised uh, to see Battlefrog allowing this uh, as because this was clearly an exception to the to the age uh, age limit. Not because that they they should have or should not have done it, but because it would have created that precedent, right? And um, I found it interesting that Battlefrog itself did not really necessarily publicize this story either during or after. So a lot of what you see is actually coming from other sources. Uh, and I would imagine that this would be difficult to handle because now, uh, having created the precedent, how do you handle the next case that comes up? Is, does it become a case-by-case basis? Do you take off the age limit uh, entirely, which is an option as well, because again, I know a, a number of my friends who choose to race with their kids, but they strategically choose races that actually don't have an official age limit in place. Therefore, by racing with your child, you sign the waiver for them and you automatically accept responsibility without needing an exception to the rule or without breaking any of the rules. So that was one of the ways in which um, I know some some athletes in the sport have, have dealt with it. Well, look at things like um, the new thing that Spartans come down with where you can no longer kick the bell. Obviously, the litigious concern being that somebody falls on their head, they break their neck, and because they were encouraging people to kick the bell with their foot, that's part of the problem. Allowing a kid to get involved, and let's just say that they they experience heat exhaustion or something like that, and they were just pushed too hard, and they have no concept of when they should have backed off, or you know, what do we know? Again, we don't know what is reasonable or unreasonable in respect to how much stress these kids should take on in these events. So you allow them in the in the sport, you allow them to participate. Now you're you're definitely going to be in line for some potential legal ramifications, I would have to believe. You know, me living in California where they sue everybody for everything, I would be, well, hell, I used to put on events. I used to put, I put on the first professional triathlon for CBS Sports on the island of Kauai in 1983. I've been around this forever. Uh, and more recently, I used to put on just a little 10K run for Thanksgiving. And people would get a hold of me and ask if it was okay to push a baby stroller. And then I would have people ask, was it okay to bring their dog? And, you know, try to imagine you got a lot of people running and then someone comes around the corner with a dog on a leash and the leash gets in front of the baby carriage that they're pushing and there's 
catastrophe. The kid falls out of the stroller, and you know whatever happens in all. I wouldn't. I wouldn't allow it. No baby strollers, no dogs on the course. You're either coming to run or you're not coming to run. And there was age limits. You know, the earliest age was whatever it was. Point being is that I felt responsible for what occurred during that event. And I certainly didn't want to get sued because I wasn't being responsible. And so I wonder how this is all going to shake out. Well, it seems that people are rarely upset about rules. People are upset about changes to rules. Hence the kicking the bell versus not kicking the bell, because if uh, Spartan Race had the no kicking of the bell rule from the very beginning, no one would have been losing their shit now. Yeah. It's, it's the <laughs> fact that, but we were able to kick the damn bell for the past four years, and now you're telling us we can't. So it's understandable, because you go from, well, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Well, you know, I, but I understand. I mean, trust me, let's say that we're kicking the bell, Somebody falls on his head, he breaks his neck, and I don't know if that happened. It may have. Or maybe even somebody sued because they fell because they kicked the bell. I don't know what the deal is. Something happened. You know something had to happen. But, you know, you say, oops, that probably wasn't a good idea, and it's our responsibility to set the stage, right? And I remember back in the day putting on triathlons in the ocean, and I used to wonder a lot of things. When you, you put people in the ocean, a lot of people in the ocean at the same time, things can happen. I mean, there is so much opportunity for bad things to happen. And I used to uh, lose sleep about that. And what would be a reasonable thing to do? How much should we concern ourselves with the amount of support we have in the water to keep an eye out for someone that may be drowned or got kicked in the head or, uh, God forbid, bitten by a shark or something like that i mean it's that's one of those things it's like as a an event promoter you have to think about the consequences associated with what you what you draw people to to do and especially if they're paying you to participate so the onus goes back to the event promoters and yeah it's kind of sucks that you know you got really good at kicking the bell and all of a sudden you can't kick it anymore you got to climb all the way to the top and or reach all the way to the end before you can complete the obstacle. But it makes sense to me. And, and I think that if it were me putting on an obstacle course event and someone came to me and said, look, I want to bring my nine-year-old daughter out on this 24-hour event. Will it be okay? And I, I, th I would say, no, not on my watch. I would not allow it. I would not allow it. Because you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to wear the consequences later if they'd occurred. It might have been a warm and fuzzy moment for the parent and the kid. It may be something that she will remember for the rest of her life as being this moment she spent with her dad and what a cool thing it was. That's very likely to happen. But I just don't want to be the what-if guy, right? Uh, actually, I mean, the experience itself sounded uh, truly amazing. You you were talking about the kind of the warm and fuzzy moment, and I've had a um, couple of people reach out to me uh, who were fairly angry about the article saying that while you weren't there, you didn't see, right? You didn't see her crossing the finish line and tearing up and uh, having this incredible moment. And uh, I think part of me was actually glad that I wasn't there because I didn't, I wasn't writing about the kid. I was, I wasn't writing about her father. I was writing about portrayal of the story in the media. And for that angle, it was actually probably better that I wasn't there because I didn't have um, the 
I didn't have the actual story in front of me that would bias my understanding of how it was portrayed. Mm. So like when we talk about safety, and it's it's interesting because when you start talking about safety on one hand, you can say, well, it is on race organizers. Some of it is, but there are always going to be three factors. There is what racers do, there is what race directors do, and then there's the race itself. Like I've been uh, a big vocal supporter of uh, Puego y Agua events, and it's the sim- for survival run, it's the simplest consent waiver form in the world if i get hurt lost or die it's my own damn fault well it's also in nicaragua nicaragua australia but i don't know if that matters right it's actually the approach to the event because there's always going to be um how can race directors and organizers make sure that this is a safe event how can the racers themselves make sure that they're not putting themselves in danger? And I mean, like, to me, like sunscreen comes to mind or lack of hydration comes to mind or showing up to a race without any sort of nutrition, because that's not on race organizers. You're actually creating your own racing experience where you're putting yourself in danger unnecessarily, but that's on you. That's not on a race director. And then there is also the factor of the race itself. So a 24-hour race will always come with unique challenges that a two-hour race will not have. If you're dealing with very rugged terrain, that is the characteristic of the race itself. And you kind of have to respect the race. You have to respect the mountain, respect the terrain, uh, and kind of adjust what it is you do as a racer and as a race organizer, perhaps, to minimize the likelihood of of things that are easily preventable. You'll never be able to prevent freak accidents and someone's heart stopping mid-race and someone uh, even falling off uh, and, you know, breaking the ankle like that. Someone's hand slips and uh, they twist uh, their leg wrong and they break an ankle. Some of it may have to do with the way the obstacles were constructed and that's where the race organizers come in. But some of it also uh, going to have to do with just dumb lack of luck. Right. Well, it's it's called due diligence. You know, right. at, at the end of the day, as a promoter or a producer of an event like that, if you're going to build an obstacle, it's on you to make sure that you do everything you can to ensure that the construction is not going to be the problem. Obviously, the consumer has to decide whether falling from a height that is greater than they're you know capable of enduring <laughs> that becomes their thing. But look at look at what's happening in the NFL right now with concussion. Did you see the movie that uh, Will Smith did on the concussion thing? I haven't no, but I ha- I've seen some of the articles floating around uh, lately. So maybe you can enlighten me. Well, at the you know my wife was really uh, I was surprised that she wanted to see the movie to be honest with you. But the the whole argument that the NFL was being sued by the players because these guys were having these issues later in their careers or post-career, depression and suicide and things like this, and it's because there was damage done to their brains from all the hits they were taking. And now they're coming back and suing the NFL. And my wife's position was, hey, ding-dong, you know, you're out there getting hit by 300-pound guys that are on steroids. What you think was going to happen? You know, you signed up for it. You got paid a lot of money to do it. It's on you. You should, if you didn't like it, get out of the game. But the argument was shown that the NFL went through a lot of pains to 
downplay the potential for injury and actually came out and suggested that they had physicians that were coming out and saying that there's no problem with the hits they're taking because they're wearing a helmet or whatever the deal was. But at the end of the day, they were defending their position that it's a safe sport and these hits are all fun and games and nobody's going to have any issues that are going to be life-threatening down the road. But the, the same token, look at Big Tobacco and the lawsuit that came there. I mean, clearly, if you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and you're spitting up junk all the time, you got to know it's not good for you, right? <laughs> you got to know that somewhere along the way this is going to be a problem, whether it be cancer, emphysema, or whatever it might be. And so it comes back to you. The, the onus is on you. But, you know, it's the, the whole nature of things these days is that we, we sue. And we're looking for a way to get paid because we weren't sharp enough to take care of our own, own business and we want to blame somebody else. So having been a promoter of an event for years, I always looked at the what if and, and got to be careful. And <laughs> let me give you a good one, all right? You want a good one? I owned health clubs, and my partner, we had a couple, three health clubs. And here's a guy, goes into our sauna. Obviously, you know, it's, a, it's not co-ed. It's a, it's a men-only sauna. You know, we have saunas in each locker room. And this guy's doing a yoga downward dog on the bench of the sauna and put his ass up against the ceiling and burned his butt on a nail, the head of a nail that was heated up. I mean, first of all, we're not anticipating somebody's going to put their butt on the ceiling in the sauna. But he sued us. And <laughs> How could you not foresee that somebody <laughs> eventually is going to put their ass somewhere? 25,000 bucks. And he had a little bit of a, like a little burn, like the size of a cigarette, you know. You know, it was like, a, you know, it's like you put your finger on something hot and he burned like, the, well, the, the roundness of the head of a nail on his butt and sued us because it was our fault. And so, you know, I've always been really, really I got sued one time where a woman fell off a treadmill and, uh, you know, it was her fault. She did something stupid, fell off the treadmill, but because it was, was in our place and she paid us for access to our place, she sued us. And so I've seen this time and time again. So I, I guess I'm getting off point a little bit, but the, the point I guess I'm trying to make is that when you're an event promoter, you've, you've got some responsibilities, and you have to be very, very cautious of what you allow people to do because people will, I mean, especially in obstacle racing, people do the craziest things if you let them. You know, they'll try anything, you know. And, oh, do this, okay, let's go for it, let's try it. And, I mean, I love that, I really do, but... You know, getting back to the idea of drawing a child into that environment, A, I think it's obviously the responsibility of the parent to make these decisions for the child. Even if the child was kicking and screaming to to want to, well, I could tell you in my, my own day-to-day, I've had kids come in with their older brothers to watch the work we do, and I have a high-speed treadmill, and I've had you know, teenagers running at warp speed on the treadmill, and the little kid just can't wait to get on it. And there's no way that I'd let them do it until they get to a place where they're physically capable and stature and physicality to harness that event without being in a bad place for the sake of the kid and for the sake of me not being sued. 
Well, consider within the sport of obstacle racing, right? Like there are certain things with um, construction of the obstacles, you alluded to that earlier, that could indeed be on the race uh, organizers and promoters. Like, so for example, what I uh, loved seeing in the last couple of years uh, was climbing ropes and monkey bars. So a climbing rope could be over water or over solid ground. For people that have been racing for a few hours and for, for who, you know, the grip strength is going at that point uh, where your hands are no longer working and you're at the top of the rope, falling into the water presents significantly less risk for injury than falling on ground. And that's what Spartan Race has been doing with a lot of their rope climbs, where rope climbs are specifically constructed over a body of water to break people's fall. Uh, similarly, with monkey bars, like monkey bars being, again, over dry ground versus um, you know, OCRWC style or battle frog style, where monkey bars are over water, if your hands slip, you land in the water, much safer than you slip and potentially break your ankle. Right. So there is that kind of balance to what you can do with an existing obstacle to minimize injuries in this case that like it, it can be done and that to me is just intelligent obstacle design well i see kids all the time you know we train in a local park where there's you know little gym set up for the kids and there's always like these horizontal ladders and rings and stuff for them to go across and you take a kid that's 10 years old 9 10 years old and they go across this stuff like it's nothing because their strength to weight ratio is such that they're just physically more capable they're more limber they just they're just, it's perfect for them. And so the risk of getting across some of those obstacles, even climbing a rope, is not as grave as it might be for someone like me. <laughs> you know, I'm going to fall to my death when I, when I you know, because I don't, I tell people all the time, I don't, I don't uh, bounce anymore. I, I splat when I hit the ground. Uh, so that isn't so much the concern that I might have with kids. The concern I have is the amount of stress that they take on, just the work just the global work that they're doing and pressured to do that work. And I don't mean pressured by the parent again. I mean by just the need to finish quickly and more course to go. I, I just don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. I guess. It'd be difficult to define what too much is and uh, too much of what. And that's part of what I, I wrote about is that um, my primary concern was never really with the extensive amount of quote unquote training in this case that has occurred for Mila. And I don't really know how much training that is because various numbers have been thrown around, but it was like two hours a day or three hours a day or four hours a day, according to some um, articles and posts. I, I assume and I hope that what we're referring here to like a nine-year-old doing a three-hour training uh, five days a week or six days a week that we're referring to light or moderate physical activity like skill work whether that's what you described right it's the monkey bars it's it's very much within context of play it's hanging off rigs it's maybe like body weight stuff well, uh, rather than well, i think what you actually described as forced labor right well, okay so let's go to that for a second i'm looking at pictures right now that are posted on the internet of her doing deadlift with a barbell in one picture, the weight's like, uh, you know, not a big deal. It doesn't seem like it's much of a concern. But in another picture, the weight looks pretty significant, and she's posing to do deadlifts. 
So getting to your point in all of this was the deception. Now, if let's say, for example, that they were just posing her with this big barbell, what's the take home for the, the person that reads or, or, or looks into this through the, the media that, oh, wow, they developed this child by having her do this exercise, so maybe that would be a good thing for my kid to do. You see where I'm going with this? Is that maybe she was just posing. I don't know. But I, I read that she's doing three hours with the training five days a week. And kids play all day. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's it's not a concern timeline-wise. It has to do with the amount of stress that they're going through. What are they doing and how is it being driven, I guess? I think that's a great distinction. And I think you're definitely uh, onto something there. So it's that... Um, there is the potential for playing, being physically active, two, three, even more hours a day. But then the way, when we go to the way it's portrayed, we see deadlifts, we see kettlebells. We actually see something that suggests a much heavier load, right? Like you see loaded back squats in some of the videos, say she's only squatting with an empty bar, which could be, you know, 35 pounds or 45 pounds or 15 pounds for some of the training bars. Uh, but we see heavy loaded exercises in, in the training regime. So I think, yeah, like you said, for some parents or maybe even for some kids, I think that may suggest uh, something that is different from the way uh, perhaps her training actually is. So while Christian is a personal trainer, and I would imagine that he has the knowledge and expertise to adjust her load accordingly, other people may not. And I wonder, now, if I was that parent, like seeing a nine-year-old, according to videos, who does deadlifts and squats and kettlebell swings, do I then assume that that is a good idea for my child as well? Well, look, I'm a trainer, and all the training I've done for the most part, where strength training is concerned, has been with adults. And I have worked with, with adolescents, and I do work with kids. I've actually, my youngest client is probably eight or nine years old, but I'm working on running skill as a soccer player. There's no overload. There's no strength training. There's none of that going on. Uh, I, I like to believe that, and I've told parents, that the kid getting out and just enjoying life and going through the things that they like to do all by itself is probably enough work for them to develop. You don't want to force any work on them when they're young. But I'm, I'm going to go on and just say it. I'm no expert by any stretch on training kids. And I would probably go out on a limb and assume that this father, Christian, is probably no expert on how to train a kid either. And I'll bet that he was being careful. I'll bet he was trying to make sure that he didn't challenge her any more than he felt was reasonable. But I just don't know how to define reasonable. There lies the rub with me, and I know this is a completely different tangent than, than where you came at this, this blog with, but I look at the, is it a good idea, rather than whether they were trying to be deceptive. And, you know, so that's kind of where our, you know, our distinctions lie. But I just don't know that we have enough information right now to take that type of risk. And I try to put myself in that first person scenario and said, would I have done it? And I guess my answer is no. I'd like to know a little bit more about whether it's a good idea or not. I don't want to be the first person into that world to find out, ooh, that wasn't such a great idea, is kind of where I come from. I should probably close this path here by saying 
the number one, I think it's great that the little girl and her father were bonding and that she was doing something that potentially is, is a healthy thing and maybe it's going to lead to great things down the road. And better that he's spending the time with her than not, which is more commonly the case with parents. There are fathers anyway that don't seem to get enough time with their kids. But I just, I'm fearful. I'm fearful of it. I'm just very fearful of where this leads, whether, and then going back to your position on the deception, whether misleading people can end up being a problem as well. I have to ask you this. You said in your blog that you weren't impressed. Will you explain to me what led you to say that? Uh, perhaps I'm just not that quick to jump to the rah-rah-rah attitude uh, on something that I think is not as black and white. It's not as simple. And I think that's that's kind of going back to perhaps taking people's rainbow away. Uh, but being a very black and white person by nature, I think one of the things that I really work on is developing the ability to see things from multiple perspectives and not just categorically labeling something as good or bad. So is this a bad thing? I don't think so. I think there's a number of good things that came out of it. So when I see people commenting on the story saying, my God, I've been so inspired by by this, like this story of a father and a daughter completing something together that is so inspiring to me, that's a good outcome of this story. However, I'm afraid, and that's the part, that's the other side, that there will also be some of the outcomes that are not as good, right? Like potentially some bad outcomes. So so things that you've brought up, not that no Christian would be the first parent ever to put his kid under under a barbell, like Olympic weightlifting uh, training can start often earlier. Uh, But in this particular case, I think when other parents look at it, and this was one of the pretty frequent comments where fathers would comment like oh my god that is so inspiring I I think like my daughters will find this inspiring and I don't know if they will because um, kids may not have known until now that running an adult obstacle course was was an option and yet now the bar has been raised so what does that mean right like does that mean that if I'm a nine-year-old kid and I have not yet run a 24-hour race now I should to be awesome and inspiring and badass? Or or is simply unstructured play, which is what you were pointing to, is that enough? Right? So and that's one of the things I also discussed. It's kind of that a little bit of an air of superiority that I picked up on. It's that, you know, I am better than other kids, perhaps. That I don't run the kids course. I don't play video games. I race with adults. Right. So to me, my concern was, so then how would a fellow child take that? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, you still run the kid's course. I have a client that is an obstacle racer, and his daughter, I believe, is 12 years old. And she has been competing in obstacle races, and they basically have been fudging her age for her to be able to compete. And she's doing really well. I mean, she's she's fast. She runs cross country and she runs track in school. And she's she's an up and comer. I mean, we're looking at her down the road as being a pretty serious athlete. And I've actually 
offered some help in respect to how her workouts might look. But I just don't know where the drawing the line is on this, age-wise. And, you know, the rest of it, to be honest with you, for me, doesn't make that much. I'm not that concerned about it, because, I guess because of the nature of my work. I look at the, the physical ramifications of the effort rather than the socioeconomical ramifications of it, whether it's, it's going to influence others and whether we've been deceived by it. I, I, that's just not my that's not my take. But I, well, on one hand, I mean, I would be very curious. On one hand, to to hear the opinion of you know a medical professional, an exercise physiologist, uh, someone for whom you know commenting on whether this particular type of training or this particular type of racing actually impacts further physical development, right? And this would be outside of my scope of expertise. So no, I would not comment, and I could not comment. But um, on the other hand, I also would be somewhat, um, I guess, skeptical in a sense of even what a doctor potentially could say, because our baseline for physical activity in North America is really low. And I know that I'm, you know, working with some female clients that uh, who get pregnant and their family doctor pretty much tells them to stop exercising. Right. or to, to do incredibly gentle exercise. Right. And you're talking to a woman that has been exercising six days a week for an hour for the past 10, 12 years, right? right? She's not ill. She's not disabled. She's just pregnant, uh, right? And there is a little bit of that really low baseline that we have. So some of my friends that have things like mandatory physical activity for their kids, they try not to talk about it with, at, at school or with fellow parents because it could be perceived as, quote-unquote, abusive. Right. Is it? Is it abusive to um, expect your child to be engaged in some sort of physical activity on a daily basis? So uh, this is kind of going back to, I don't think the, the physical activity is a problem. It's perhaps the, the type of physical activity um, that, it, that is present here and that disconnect between what may be happening, what we think is happening with what you said, with the deadlifts and kettlebell swings and maybe squats. Well, I, I, I told you earlier that when I did the show with this ultra marathon parent and child, I also brought on a pediatrician. And this is a, a very seasoned pediatrician who is also an ultra marathoner. Uh, I don't even know how we found him, but he was in Tennessee, and he was happy to come on and discuss this with the parent and with me. And my concern was issues with growth plates and things like this. These are the things that generally are conjured up when you talk about putting too much stress on young kids. And he said he didn't feel that was going to be the concern. And he didn't have any issue with the kid running an ultramarathon. He said the the greatest risk that he felt would be present was the potential for overheating because kids don't have the surface area that adults do, and they tend to overheat easier than adults do. And so as long as the kid was being hydrated properly and somebody was conscious of that, he felt that everything was going to be okay. And to be honest with you, I was feeling like he wasn't enough for me to put stock in his opinion. I would like to know that we had 500 kids that were put through a double-blind study, and we drew conclusion based on that as opposed to just one individual's opinion. 
Are you there? Yeah, yeah. No, just very reflecting on <laughs> on what you said. Well, I just I guess my position here, if I'm supposed to have one, and I don't, I guess I don't I'm just talking, right? Is that I'd like to know more about what the the dangers are of exposing kids at that early age to events that are that complicated, that difficult. Before. I don't think that's an unreasonable question to ask, right? And I find it interesting that um, how apologetic we often sound for having an opinion. And I don't know if it's a social media thing or North American thing, but it seems that people are almost not used to others disagreeing with them. You know, like so, and it's it's a fine line I, I find because there are certain things that are definitely a matter of opinion. There's some things where I say, well, it's just my opinion. No, there's also such thing as a fact, and not everyone's opinion is equal to others. My opinion on what the best course of treatment is for cancer should not be valued as highly as an oncologist's opinion on best treatments for cancer because that is his or her scope of expertise. It's not mine, right? My scope of expertise is health coaching and behavioral change. Uh, so my opinion on those topics would perhaps be more informed and more educated than someone who doesn't work in it all day, every day, right? So, in the, And I find that writing about the sport, I am constantly rubbing against this dissonance of people not really being used to dissenting opinions, right? And um, also confusing opinions with facts and facts with opinions. And that's just kind of my uh, perhaps social science nerd coming out, right? So when we talk about like, well, I would like to know the, like, I would like to see the research, uh, what you've mentioned, right? Like I want to see multiple kids going through a double blind study where we actually look at the effects of this kind of training. That would be awesome on one hand. On the other hand, that's never going to happen. No. Just give, given the ethics, right? Like right? Given the ethics of such research, that will never occur. So we we kind of have to base our conclusions on the data that we do have available. Well, there lies the rub. Mm -hmm. Exactly that, because who's going to subject 500 children to a study? And what happens if they found out, whoa, this was a really bad idea? <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, you got 500 people suing you for putting their kids through this study. We've done a number of those studies, I think, in in the 1940s and the 1950s, and that's how you know, the ethics uh, the ethics commi committees were born to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Uh, so, as tempting as those studies would be, simply from identifying the true cause point of view there is that little thing of, well, that's probably not a right thing to do. Well, maybe so. we could do it in North Korea. Well, yeah, I've heard you can do lots of things in North Korea. So that is very possible. You just can't have a website. That's right. You can't do a podcast. Uh, you're lucky you're not in North Korea, Richard. Yeah, for a lot of good reasons. That's right. Well, listen, Kate, number one, I appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you. I don't know whether this is just creating more controversy than was already caused by, you know, shedding more light on this situation, but I just thought it was an interesting thing to talk about. I talk about a lot of things re related to the sport. This is kind of a tabooish kind of a thing, and I 
given that you you stuck your head in it, I thought, what the heck, let's get her up here and let's talk about it. But I just, I think you were asking for trouble, though, right? Kind of? I think yes and no. And uh, I think part of the reason I kind of held off, because I knew that this would be a very controversial topic to write about. And I wasn't sure... I wasn't sure I wanted to ask for trouble necessarily. And it's too bad that writing about a controversial topic is then equated to asking for trouble. Uh, So I wanted to discuss the other side because I felt that there was another side. There was was more to the story that met the eye. And even um, in the blog post, I've actually said at the end, I said, you know, like if some folks who feel the same way may not feel comfortable saying so in a public domain. I ask them to reach out to me privately and just kind of let me know. Let me know that they thought the same way, that I wasn't the only one in that line of reasoning. And I think the response that I got from those folks was really the reason that it was really kind of me saying, yes, you know what, I had to write that article. Because I wasn't the only one. Hmm. Because the number of people that reached out and said, my God, thank you so much for writing this because I thought I was insane. Like there were all these people that were applauding the story and I just had these reservations and I felt like this horrible person who was questioning the accomplishments of a nine-year-old and then here you came along and you talked about exactly what I was concerned about. Hmm. So that to me was the biggest... um, it really just showed me that it was worth it, and that's why I write. It's it's for that. Did you get a lot of people that were like really pissed? You know, not not that many. I think I've uh, it. Things are always scarier in our minds. I think I've gotten a couple of. Uh, uh, I, I think I've gotten few people that were upset, but I would say as far as the negative to positive ratio of feedback, it was probably 80-20, where 80% of feedback was really positive. And um, especially with people that reached out to me privately, I heard from the race organization that we both know and love, um, the specific, the big race organizations. I've heard from elite athletes. Uh, I've heard from uh, parents. Right. And especially like people reaching out and say, listen, like I work for such and such, so I can't actually speak out publicly because of my position. But I just wanted to let you know that I'm totally on board. Like, I totally agree with what you wrote and I wanted to let you know. And to me, that was important. And I realized that someone working for, you know, Tough Mudder or Battle Frog or Spartan Race, um, being in strong disagreement with the public opinion may not feel comfortable saying that out loud in the public forum. Okay. And that's where I come in, right? Because I can, I can express it and then those people know that they sort of have been spoken for. So, and I think the biggest compliment to me, and I've seen a couple of people saying that, um, people saying that, you know, I don't know if I agree with you 100%, uh, or I disagree with you on this and this topic, but you really made me think. You really made me reevaluate my position. And that, to me, is probably the biggest compliment someone can give me, whether they agree with me or not. When someone says, you really made me think, that's what I'm here for. It was good stuff. I, I, I think you need to keep doing what you do. I think so, too. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate uh, being able to chat. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. 
Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.